We hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, epileptic and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And they brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Um, one of the things that has been a great encouragement in my life is uh, the fruitfulness that's happening among uh, many of the college students in our midst. Um, I had the privilege of being a part of the college ministry fall retreat a couple of weeks ago. And um, at that retreat, I was preaching through the Upper Room Discourse in, in, in the Gospel of John, uh, now, I've preached through those passages. Some of you were here when I preached through those passages uh, back in 2017, and I was thinking about the last time I preached through those passages. I'm not sure we had a single college member who was here at our church, a college student who was a member of our church, and God has given just great increase, and we're very grateful for our college students. At that fall retreat, one of the things that they were doing uh, was doing a little icebreaker activity. They often do this, if you've been involved in any aspect of what they do. Uh, they try to get people to know each other. It's uh, very clever. Um, and in this particular activity, they were asking a lot of different questions. You were sort of going, and there's a line that was crossing, and you were trying, you had one question that you were asking another person, and you would answer, and you had a very short time, and then you switched, and you kept going through all the people in this particular line. And one of the questions I thought was really interesting, because of the very short conversation I had, it was, if you were a superhero, what superpower would you want? Now, the person I was talking to said that she would like super strength. It's a great idea. I was thinking, and I thought, hell, for choosing, I'd love the ability to fly. Until she asked me a follow-up question. She said, well, what would you do if you ran into a plane or something like that? <laughs> I guess I also need your super strength, don't I? And so I got to thinking about this. It stuck in my mind. I'm like, boy, you really need to, I mean, either you were Superman or essentially you're dead trying to use any of the powers you have. What would you do if you could be invisible? Would you wield that power well? Or would you use it to spy and eavesdrop on people? If you could fly and run, how would you think quickly enough, if that was the only thing you could do, to stop yourself from running into somebody? If you had that super strength, how could you safely hug your loved ones without crushing them to death? You kind of need the whole thing. This is not a new question to think about. There's an old story, the story of King Midas, you may be familiar with it. The superpower he wanted 
was to touch things and for them to turn to gold. He wanted wealth more than everything, and he got this power according to the story, and he started touching things, and they turned to gold, and what a wonderful gift, until he touched his family members, his wife, his children, and he killed them instantly by turning them to gold. And then what he thought was an unmitigated blessing became an unspeakable curse. Now, when we talk about Jesus, it's very important to clarify that we're not talking about a superhero. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, not on planet Krypton. And the powers that Jesus have had were not superpowers. We are talking about the eternal Son of God, the second person of the blessed trinity god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made of one substance with the father as we think about the incarnation in this season it is good and right for us to think about what it means for god himself to take upon a true human nature and enter into this world because though jesus existed eternally in the form of god When he came into this world, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. And what that means is that though Jesus did not rid himself of his divine power, otherwise he would cease to be God and that would not be possible, he nevertheless chose not to make use of it. He sheathed his divine power. And so it's so interesting, as you see Jesus at various points in time, he never flaunts his power by outward displays. He never misuses his power. Instead, what Jesus is so often doing is he is showing us, setting an example for us, of what it looks to live as a true human being who lives by faith in the power of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the story that we are seeing here today, we are seeing a big idea that goes like this. Faith empowers believers to endure suffering. Faith empowers believers to endure suffering. Now, it's that question of suffering that I want to overshadow this entire discussion of this question. What did Jesus do with his power? Did he rid himself of suffering as we would often like to do? It's interesting to see what exactly he does. We're going to look at this in three sections. First of all, the faithlessness of Jesus' disciples. The faithlessness of Jesus' disciples. Second, the faith that moves mountains. The faith that moves mountains. And third, the faithfulness of the Son of Man. The faithfulness of the Son of Man. So first of all, the faithlessness of Jesus' disciples. Now again, if you've been with us through many of the, trans- or many of the sermons in, in the Gospel of Matthew, I often point to the transitional statements. It's very important to see Matthew as not just sort of telling one story after another as he has free association and remembers them. He's really crafting a story. And in fact, it's not just Matthew, but it's the other synoptic Gospel writers. Synoptic means seeing together. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're largely telling the same story. Many of the stories are the same. The orders are the same. It's different. John gives us a totally different view on the life of Jesus. But in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, in all cases, right after the transfiguration, we have this exact story. They're connected together. That after Jesus is on the mountaintop revealing the glory of his person 
as the eternal Son of God, where the veil drops for a moment, where His glory is revealed. Now He descends down the mountain, and we read in verse 14, now they come to the problems that are awaiting for Jesus below. And when they came to the crowd, instantly Jesus is approached with a need of ministry. A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Now, when we read the word Lord, this is an important word. It is sometimes, for example, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used to translate the proper name of the Lord. Yahweh is translated with this word, Lord. But other times, it's often a greeting that's simply polite. It's like saying sir or mister. It's unclear exactly what this man means when he says Lord, but he says, Lord, have mercy. And it's really interesting to see in the Gospel of Matthew the people who say, Lord, have mercy to Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 15, it was the Canaanite woman. Do you remember the Canaanite woman? She came and said, Lord, have mercy on my daughter, asking for mercy for her daughter. In Matthew 20, we haven't gotten there yet. Lord willing, we'll get there after a few weeks, maybe a few months, if I'm honest. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, two blind men come to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy, son of David. Now, this man doesn't say son of David to Jesus, but he calls him Lord and asks him to have mercy. He is at least acknowledging the power of Jesus to heal his son. And he's also acknowledging something about the kindness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus to heal. It's very important we understand that this man is exercising faith, real faith in Jesus. And that's important because of what we read next. In verse 16, the man reveals that he brought his son to the disciples of Jesus. Now remember, this is nine of the disciples of Jesus. Three of the disciples of Jesus were not here at the bottom of the mountain. They were with Jesus on top of the mountain as witnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus. The nine, however, were unable to heal, even though Jesus previously had given his disciples authority to cast out every unclean spirit, the ability to heal people from diseases. Exactly what's happening here, but they were unable to do so. And so in verse 17, Jesus utters an unusual note of frustration at the failure of his disciples. The failure of his nine disciples specifically. In verse 17, he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus notes that his disciples are faithless. They lacked faith. While Jesus perfectly trusted his Father in heaven, they did not trust him. They did not trust his Father. Otherwise, they would have been able to do what Jesus had equipped and sent them to do. But they're also twisted. Uh, Leon Morris, one commentator, says this probably means twisted in their thinking, distorted in their spiritual attitude. Perhaps this is what Paul is getting at when he talks about the warning against being conformed to the thinking of this age. Do not be conformed to this age. They were twisted and distorted in that spiritual attitude. But the key thing we need to recognize is not whatever was going on with the nine disciples. It's the effect that this has on Jesus. The disciples' failure in this point is a source of deep discouragement to the Lord. We very often think about this. 
But with everything that Jesus has to do, we can think of clear places where he must suffer. Certainly the cross, certainly when he has to fast for 40 days as he is waiting this. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating great drops of blood and his anxiety approaching the cross. But as he's doing all of this, as he's fulfilling all righteousness, everything that he was sent to do, he was doubted by those closest to him at every turn. In the Gospel of John, we read about the doubt of his brothers, the brothers in his family. Here we read about the faithlessness of his disciples. And Jesus is discouraged. He is pained by it. Now, Matthew actually tells us some really remarkable things about the doubt of those closest to Jesus. It's in Matthew alone when we come all the way to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and heaven knows when that will be in our sermon series, if the Lord tarries that long. But in Matthew chapter 28, even after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, when the eleven disciples are with Jesus, we read they worshipped him, but some doubted. They doubted him after his resurrection. They were there to see him crucified. They knew he was dead. They had seen him alive, but some doubted. At this point in Jesus' life leading up to the cross, it's a part of his suffering. It's a part of his humiliation. And so when Jesus cries out, How long? It's a remarkable double-edged sword because in one sense, he is acknowledging that this is so difficult for him that he wished he could be relieved of this right away. How long do I have to put up with this? But in the context of everything that we've been studying, this is where Jesus is beginning to talk about what must happen to him when he goes to the cross. How long? Well, we're going to read a little bit about what's happening in a few verses. Very soon, very soon, he will be relieved of this when he has to go through the ultimate suffering of the cross. Jesus is suffering, not only by what he has to do, but also by the doubts of his disciples. But in verse 18, although Jesus is discouraged, he calls the boy over, and this boy who was oppressed by a demon, Jesus rebukes that demon, and the demon comes out of him, and he is healed instantly. There's just an emphasis on the instantaneous healing of this child. As hard as it was for the nine, as impossible as it was for Jesus' disciples, Jesus has no difficulty with this. Now, it's important that we think about doubts because we live in a world that valorizes, that glorifies doubts, that glorifies the deconstruction of faith. You can be a really famous person on social media if you used to be a Christian and then you tell everyone in the world why you are no longer a Christian, why you deconstruct your faith. I'm sure you've seen this. Maybe you know people who are going through this kind of a process. The world loves this because it affirms the world's faithlessness. The world loves this, so we have to ask, what do we do when we have doubts? What do we do when we have questions? You know, the Bible has such a helpful perspective on questions. The Bible never forbids us from asking questions. In fact, the Bible shows us that it is good and right for us to ask questions. Uh, there was a theologian uh, who lived about a thousand years ago, and he talked about faith-seeking understanding. I believe, and because of my belief, not to try to overthrow my belief, but out of my belief, I am going to seek to understand what is revealed to me. 
I'm not going to take simplistic surface level objections and use those as a reason to deconstruct. I want to dive deeper to understand the mind of Christ as revealed in the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can take up anything and use it as a reason to disprove anything in, you want in this world. If you want to go online and find all the reasons to believe in a flat earth, they're all out there. You can disbelieve whatever you want to disbelieve. But the Bible teaches us that the problem is not so much when we have doubts. The problem is what we do with those doubts. I think the best place to learn about how faith should be operating in the midst of questions, doubts, difficulties of why, O oh Lord, is this happening, is to go to the Psalms. In the Psalms, we have so many prayers, words that are given to struggling Christians throughout the ages. Not just the last 50 years of our denomination, not just the last 2,000 years of Christianity, but even into the Old Testament, for a 1,000 years before that, given to us, where we have words, not of people who are deconstructing their faith, but of people who are looking to the Lord for answers, people who are beating on the doors of heaven in prayer, expecting for God to respond. Again, it's not the doubts, it's not the questions that get us into trouble. It is what we do with them. It is where we take those. And instead of taking these issues to the Lord, the insinuation that Jesus is giving here is that his disciples must have been looking to themselves for the resources and the power to do what they needed to do. That's why they failed. Because they were faithless and they were twisted and trying to seek answers outside of the Lord. But again, in this, this is not a minor thing. This is not a neutral thing. Jesus is revealing that there is a true moral component to this kind of faithlessness, to these kinds of doubts that don't look to the Lord with our doubts. And the doubt here pains him, frustrates him. Not all questions are innocent. Some are not because of our curiosity, honest curiosity. They are designed to wiggle out of responsibility. You may have heard there was a famous athlete who was injured recently, and she said, that injury, the fact that I was injured, is proof that God doesn't exist. Well, maybe our ways are just not God's ways. Maybe our thoughts are just not God's thoughts. Faith seeks understanding. In the parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, it's so interesting, this man who's challenged by Jesus. In Mark 9, verse 24, it's here where we find that great line, I believe, help my unbelief. Is that your prayer this morning? Or are you saying, I don't believe because I don't want to, and now I have a convenient excuse to deconstruct all of this and walk away? Well, the next section, when the disciples come up to Jesus to ask him about all of this, Jesus talks about the faith that moves mountains. That's the second section. What does Jesus want? He wants faith. What kind of faith? Well, in verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus privately. Why do they come privately? Well, probably because they've been humiliated three times. They failed to cast out the demon. Jesus publicly rebuked them. Nobody likes that. And then Jesus just very easily, immediately, as though it were nothing, because it's not because of his great faith, power of God, Jesus easily cast out the demon that they could not. So perhaps to avoid a fourth embarrassment, they approached Jesus in private. What was the problem? Why could we not cast out 
this demon. And Jesus says very simply, it is because of your little faith. Now what Jesus goes on is to explain what he means by little faith. It's not the amount of faith. It's not that they had this much faith and they really needed to have that much faith. Jesus says the amount isn't the issue. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, the amount of faith is not the issue. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. Here's that superpower. Nothing will be impossible for you. What Jesus says is it's not the amount of faith. It is the quality of your faith. But it raises the question, doesn't it? Jesus is telling us that we have this superpower. If we have faith, we can move mountains. What's he promising here? You know, if you've ever been on a bike up a hill, sometimes you might wonder, could I flatten this thing? It'd be so much easier to get up this hill if it weren't so high. But can you imagine if people were just going around flattening hills and mountains? Think about the destruction that would be wrought if people just flattened the Rocky Mountains because they didn't like the, the inconvenience of having to travel over the difficulty of those things. The question is not if you have the superpower. The more interesting question is, would you wield that power well? And of course, it's not just literal mountains, higher elevation places. It's also a metaphorical question, isn't it? Could you wisely improve upon the beauty of God's creation if you were just flattening everything in front of you because it was inconvenient to go up the hill? Or this, could you improve on the wisdom of God's providential, wise, gracious, good plan for your life by flattening out the suffering that you must endure? Do you really think you could improve upon God's plan? The things that we are given sometimes seem overwhelming. But once you get beyond it, once you look back at certain times, have you had that experience where you look back and you say, you know, I did not choose that at the time, but I see what the Lord was doing. Indeed, if we could see what the Lord was doing from an eternal perspective, do you not think that we would be cheering Him on? If we believe the Lord is wise and we believe that He is good, do you not understand that God uses even suffering in ways that are for our good, for our glory? Jesus is not here promising a name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel. Some take this text and say you can have whatever you want as long as you believe hard enough. And if you believe hard enough, you will get it. And if you don't get it, the problem is with your too little faith. You should have believed harder. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And it's not just prosperity gospel among Christian denominations, professedly Christian denominations. This is New Age stuff. We don't manifest our desires into the universe. We don't visualize and somehow that brings about what we are after. What we have, what Jesus is talking about here, is essentially connected, is built into God's promises to us. Not our whims, I want that, therefore, if I believe hard enough, I can get it. It's connected to whether God will indeed give us what he promises to give us. 
John Calvin gets this right when he says, the meaning amounts to this, that God will never forsake us if we keep the door open for receiving His grace. He does not mean that God will give us everything that we may mention or that may strike our minds at random. Let us therefore maintain such moderation as to desire nothing beyond what He has promised to us and to confine our prayers within that rule which He has laid down, that is, in His Word. Do you see the difference between those two approaches? What Jesus is talking about is not about commanding God according to your wisdom. It's rather about God's making you capable to endure what He has appointed in His wisdom. See the difference? Not about you commanding God according to your wisdom. I want this. I'm going to believe hard enough. Now give it to me. It's about God's making you capable to bear up under His wisdom. And that's the superpower. That's what God promises to give us by faith. Don't get bogged down in speculative questions about this verse, because speculative questions abound. The question is, do your prayers reflect true faith to lay hold of what God has promised to you? Never mind what else we might imagine. Are you really tuned in, clicked in, looking and depending upon what God has promised? Do you believe His promise that He truly pardons sin? Or are you still wallowing in guilt and shame? Do you believe His promise that He truly makes sinners holy? Or are you still wallowing in your sin? Do you believe His promise that He truly changes the hearts of others, those who are so difficult, who you imagine would never change? Do you believe that God changes their hearts and are you praying for that? Do you believe that He can meet all of your needs? Or do you suffer from what the author of Hebrews calls weak knees and drooping hands? Does your faith flag so that you stop looking to the Lord in prayer, beating on the door of heaven, asking God to give you what He has promised you? This isn't about shaming you to pray more. This is to bolster your confidence in the promises of God. What God has promised, He will give to us. And you just need the faith of a mustard seed to lay hold of it. But as we think about our own lives, before we really go to those issues that we have, Matthew wants us to put the spotlight first and foremost on Jesus, the true man. What about Jesus' mountain? What about the suffering that he must go through? Is his faith strong enough to move out of his way the cross that stands in front of him? And the answer is, if we're asking the question that way, we haven't really understood what Jesus is teaching us about faith. And that's why I think the next section, that's why I've included this section in this sermon, is in this third and final section, verses 22 and 23, the faithfulness of the Son of Man. We saw the faithlessness of the disciples, the faith that moves mountains, and now we need to see the way the true man, Jesus Christ, truly God and yet also truly man, the way he lives by faith, to do all that he has been sent by his Father to do. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. This is now the third time when Jesus very clearly predicts his sufferings. We saw this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. We saw this in Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 12, the previous passage to this. 
And now for a third time, Jesus states that he must suffer. There's a little bit of new information. Part of it comes in that word delivered. It means to hand over, or the way it's often translated, especially as we come to the Lord's table on the night when our Lord was betrayed. It's that word there. It is hinting at the fact, remember that discouragement from the faithlessness and the doubts of his disciples? That is going to balloon. It's not over. It's not set aside. One of his disciples is actually going to lift up his heel against him and hand him over to the hands of wicked men who will crucify and kill him. This doubt theme will not go away, even among Jesus' closest disciples. But there's another part of this, and it's that in that little word or little phrase, about to. That's an actual word in Greek, a verb, about to. Again, go back to that question Jesus asked earlier, how long? And the answer is not long. The Son of Man is about to be delivered over, and they will kill him, and he will rise again on the third day. Now, what Jesus says here is a critical qualification to understand and rightly interpret what Jesus just said in the verse earlier, in verse 20. Nothing will be impossible for you. Again, that's not name it and claim it. Look at the life of Jesus. In Matthew 26, verse 39, what did Jesus pray for? He prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we are told that he prayed these words three times. Jesus prayed for this. Did he get what he wanted? Well, at one level, no. The Father did not take the cup from him. But at another level, what Jesus wanted more than to avoid the suffering and shame and humiliation, torture and wrath of God at the cross, which, by the way, that's a good desire. God created human beings to desire life. It is good that we desire life. Jesus is right not to want to go to the cross, just sort of if we're thinking about whether he should want to die. No, he shouldn't want to die. But he's also praying something else. It's a complex prayer. He's also praying that he wants the Father's will to be done even more than he wants to escape suffering and pain and death. So did Jesus get what he wants? Well, at another level, an even deeper level, yes. A little bit later in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 through 54, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, I could get out of this at any point if I wanted to. But then he asks, but how should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Nothing was impossible for Jesus. But what Jesus wants most of all is to obey the will of his Father in heaven no matter what. I think another important contextual suggestion about how we are to interpret this idea of moving a mountain, the superpower of moving a mountain, came back in chapter 16 when Jesus first started talking about his own sufferings. And he told the disciples about his sufferings, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Chapter 16, verse 22, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen for you. But we read then in the ver next verse that Jesus turned around and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, this is actually written, as we talked about in that sermon, this is written to reflect the exact language that Jesus spoke to Satan when he was being tempted. It's begone, Satan, in Matthew chapter 4. Here it is begone behind me. Satan. 
that Jesus is saying to Peter. Now, why does he add this language behind me? Well, it's because of what Jesus says next. You are a hindrance, a stumbling block. You are a particular kind of mountain. You are a boulder that is in my way toward the cross, and you need to be moved. When Jesus talks about moving mountains, he's talking about moving the hindrances to enter into the suffering that his father has appointed for him. The suffering of his own anxieties, the suffering of the doubts and confusion and the distress of his disciples. Jesus is praying for faith to endure, not to avoid, but to endure all that will be asked of him. The application then this morning is this. Pray for faith to endure your suffering. Faith is a gift. It's something we should ask for. Therefore, pray for faith to endure your suffering. This is a time of great suffering in our church. So many things are happening in so many families in our church. This is such a timely passage. Because as Jesus reminded us just a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 16, it's not only he who must take up his cross, we must take up our cross and follow him. But if you know what that means, to take up a cross, to follow Jesus, this is an overwhelming, daunting, terrifying, harrowing task. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me. Not you. And what's remarkable is, again, as we think about our Lord, though he was true God, when he entered this world and took upon himself the form of a servant, he did not cease to be God, but he chose not to make use of his divine power. Instead, he modeled for us what it looks like to live by faith on the power of God. He was dependent at every step of his life on the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience to his Father in heaven. I'm not sufficient. You're not sufficient. Even Jesus in his humanity shows that he must depend upon the Holy Spirit, that he must pray for strength to endure. If Jesus needs that, don't you think you do? Pray for faith to endure your suffering. Some of you face daunting mountains this morning. And part of your prayers, I'm sure, are, Lord, remove this mountain. Move this mountain away from me. In the promises of God, he does not necessarily promise to remove your suffering. Do you understand the real mountain that needs to be removed is your stony, hard heart? the faithless and twisted heart that refuses to look to Jesus Christ by faith, that will look anywhere for resources except to Jesus Christ by faith. The real mountain that needs to be moved is in your heart. Pray that God would remove that stony heart and give you instead a soft heart of flesh that you would believe the promises of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of Christianity. That's the gospel that we've been celebrating all morning. Are you trusting in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ to cleanse you of your sins, to count you as righteous when your life is hidden with Christ in God? There's no hope apart from Him. Are you trusting in Christ for strength then, as your refuge, as the castle, the fortress in whom you have put your life through faith in Him? Are you trusting Him for strength to face whatever sorrow, whatever loss, whatever pain, whatever suffering? The Lord in His wisdom has appointed for you. There's no hope apart 
from him. I want to close then with the words that I closed with last week from Philippians 4, verse 1. For those of you who are going through deep, deep valleys of the shadow of death, hear this exhortation of encouragement in the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for faith. Though your spirit is so willing, our flesh is so weak, and we resist foolishly, sinfully, to look to you for the strength and endurance that we need. We pray for that this morning and ask that you would give to us what we don't naturally ask for from you. Give us Christ Jesus, we pray, and all the benefits of his death and resurrection, the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.